Today on Blue 58, everything the Packers do between now and the end of the 2020 regular season is about playoff positioning. So how are things shaping up? A good listener question gives us a chance to take a look at exactly what's happening. Then, some thoughts on fourth down play calling and Darius Shepard. Why is he on the roster anyway? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Mirnick. Very happy to be with you here couple of short announcements as we get started here. First and foremost, this is the 100th episode of 2020. Hooray for episode 100. Amidst everything else that has happened in 2020, I am proud to at least have gotten to that milestone. So uh, thanks for being there with us throughout all 100 of those episodes through the end of the 2019 season in through a weird draft and uh, everything that has followed. Thanks for being there with us. Secondly, uh, if you are listening to this, you may be interested to know that there is another episode of the Patreon podcast that went up at some point in the last 12 to 24 hours, or I guess further on in the past, if depending on when you listen to this. Uh, but you can check that out at patreon.com and uh, slash the power sweep. If you are supporting us for a dollar a month, you get access to all the content that we post. You can, of course, give more than a dollar a month if that's something that you want to do, but uh, we just want to get people in the door there. A dollar per month is what's going to do it, and you can have access to everything that we post there. So, as we said in the intro, everything that the Packers are going to do between now and the end of the season is about playoff positioning. Packers are 7-3, and three, currently uh, positioned as the 2-seed or 3-seed, depending on how their relationship with the NFC West winner shakes out. They're not going to be lower than the three seed, it looks like, because as long as they win the division, they'll be ahead of anybody who comes in as a wild card team. They may not get the bye. They may end up with a bye. What they do between now and the end of the season is going to determine that. And I want to talk about a couple of things related to that, thanks in part to a question from Rudy, the good question asker. This is a long question. We're going to edit it a little bit and take it take it apart um, and talk about a couple different different parts of his question here. So, Rudy starts. Is there any correlation between that teams that sign free agents midseason going quote unquote all in and raising their performance and ultimately their playoff seat? I'm working on a theory of the Packers always building, never built philosophy. It sure would be nice to have them, or sure would have been nice to have Pittman or Fuller. On Sunday, I think we win that game over the Colts if we have either of them. Here's the theory in a nutshell. Playoff seeding is really important, and very few people in the Packers organization seem to care. Does your playoff seed correlate to Super Bowl participation? Yes. The ideal path to the Super Bowl is, Rudy says, not surprisingly, to be a one or a two seed. And he has some stats about that. He continues. The theory posits that as an unintended consequence of the 2010 Super Bowl win, the Packers have only really cared about making it to the playoffs and see what happens. If we were all in on this year, it's Will Fuller or Michael Pittman catching that wide receiver screen in overtime, not Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who in the all-in scenario is a wide receiver four or five and just runs fast and long routes for a living. But because we're scared at sacrificing anything in the future, we do underperform today. So the Packers, in the running to be a one seed, will be content for a two to four seed and see what happens. He doesn't really end with the question there, but there is enough that we can we can really take apart a couple things. First, it does seem important that you get as high a seat as possible as possible in the playoffs. But I will push back on saying that it's 
being a high seed that gets you to the later rounds of the playoffs. You probably are more likely to get to the rounds of the later rounds of the playoffs just by being a good team. Is I think there's some correlation causation issues there between do you get far because you're a high seed or are you a high seed because you're a good team and then you get far in the playoffs. But assuming that that's true, the Packers should definitely be trying to get as high a seed as possible. The second thing is something that we've talked about a lot, that the Packers always seem to be building for the future, but never truly, really trying to jam open the window in the present as much as they can. And I think there is something to that idea. If you think of the Packers like the life cycle of a team, not just the Packers, but the Packers specifically, since this is a Packers podcast, if you think about the life cycle of a team as like a bell curve, there's going to be a point where you're building towards the, the peak, where you peak, and then you sort of slide down the backside of that that hill. It seems like the Packers are always in that last halfway to two-thirds of the way up the front side of the bell curve, never quite to the peak, but trying to hang out there with the thinking that they're going to maximize their window as much as possible. They're always going to be making the playoffs, and hopefully one of these times you make a run and maybe you get all the way to the Super Bowl. That happened in 2010. The Packers were well-positioned to do that in 2009. 2011 was as close to a peak as they've ever been, but they were kind of they're really paper tigers that year. Uh, but generally, that that is does seem like how the Packers have operated. And as we pointed out in the past, that is in stark contrast to how a team like the Patriots has operated, where every single year it seems like they're trying to jam themselves as close to the peak there, maybe even go a little bit past it. We're dealing with a few guys that are maybe a little bit past their prime, but they're veterans, so they give you those kind of boosts. Um, and maybe some psychological stuff in there as well where they are able to get over the hump and get to the Super Bowl and, and win Super Bowls, at least get to nine of them. And uh, they've gone from there. And now they're kind of on the, the far side of that bell curve in their life cycle of the Belichick era, it seems like. So unless they have a major retool in the, in the near future, they're not going to be at any part of the contending part of that slope. But it does seem like the Packers end up on the front side of that a lot. So that leads us to a couple questions. First, are the Packers good enough to be a number one or two seed given the rest of the NFC field? And second, would doing would have would doing anything at the trade deadline have really bolstered their chances at getting that one or two seed based on past results? So looking at teams that have made big acquisitions midseason before, could they really have changed their seeding all that much? Let's start with number two here. I did some digging on this, and I've had a really hard time finding a lot of evidence for guys that really moved the needle. But let's focus on a couple that seem to have at least made some kind of of impact here. Free agents that really move things one way or another are few and far between. Even Andre Risen, if you look back at the impact he really had statistically on the Packers, it was pretty minimal. And if you take out the big catch that he had in the playoffs or in in the Super Bowl, it's even less. It, it was pretty small. There may have been, again, some psychological factors there, but it was pretty small. However, let's assume that it's at least possible, and let's find a couple guys that have, have moved the needle. These are all going to be trades. Let's talk about a few. 2017, the Philadelphia Eagles trade for then Miami Dolphins running back Jay Ajayi. The Eagles that year were 6-1 and one without him, and then 6-1 and one with him. It probably helped keep them going that strong. Two 6-1 and one runs um, in the regular season is pretty impressive. 
They ended up losing in week 17, but Ajayi sat for that game because the seeding didn't matter at that point. And the Eagles ended up as the one seed in the playoffs in 2017. And in the, in the playoffs, they rode him pretty hard. He had 42 carries over three games, gained 184 yards. They did win the Super Bowl, even if he didn't have to play that big of a role in the Super Bowl. In 2012, the Patriots traded for Akib Tlaib. They were 5-3 and three prior to that trade. They finished the season 12-4. and four. They went 5-1 and one in games Tlaib played. So, it was at least possible that he moved the needle a little bit for them there. And the Patriots, as a result, ended up as the two seed in the AFC. He probably helped their chances. It would have been a five or six seed if they had lost even one more game. So at least, in theory, if he helped them win one more game, that improved the Patriots' playoff seeding. They didn't get to the Super Bowl there, but it did bump them up uh, the seeding chart. In 2010, this is a weird one, the Seahawks traded for Marshawn Lynch, not a deadline deal, but close enough that we'll count it. They were 2-2 two and two prior to Marshawn Lynch arriving, but 5-7 and seven after he arrived. However, this was a year that a seven-win team made the playoffs, and this also ended up being the year of the Beastquake, that magnificent playoff run he had against the New Orleans Saints. So it definitely seems that this trade helped the Seahawks win at least one playoff game. Maybe not help their seeding, but maybe won them one game in the playoffs that they maybe wouldn't have otherwise won, and maybe one game in the regular season that they wouldn't have otherwise won. It would be really hard to make it at 6-10. and 10. Theoretically, it's possible, but getting to seven wins definitely got them to the playoffs. This is, again, not an exhaustive list, and we're not really looking to confirm one way or another that making an acquisition at the trade deadline is going to improve your team. However, what we're trying to establish is that it's at least theoretically possible to improve your team enough at the trade deadline that you move up the playoff seating. And I think these examples do point us in that direction. It is at least theoretically possible that a deadline addition could help you move up the charts. Now, to answer the first question, are the Packers good enough to be a one or two seed given the rest of the NFC field? I think yes. Given where they are right now, they're in the running to be a one or two seed. And given where the rest of the contenders for that spot are, I think they're in pretty good shape to get there. Now, there's some good teams in the NFC, but I'm not sure that there is a great one. And in fact, I'm not sure there's a great team in the entire NFL this year. There's a lot of pretty good teams, but not a lot of great ones. Here are the other top four contenders for the one and two seeds. The Saints are coming in right now at 8-2. and two. They are the top dogs in the NFC as we, as we talk right now. The Packers do have a bit of a leg up on them should they stumble down the stretch because they have the head-to-head tiebreaker. The Saints are going to finish out their season playing the Broncos, Falcons, and Eagles, then the Chiefs, Vikings, and Panthers. That is not the toughest schedule in the world. Um, there are some tough ones in there. The Chiefs and Vikings in particular could give them some trouble, uh, but they've also got a couple layups in there. Broncos and Falcons are probably easy Ws. Uh, The Panthers, too. Eagles, who knows? And then you've got the Chiefs and Vikings. So the the Saints have a good shot. The Rams play the 49ers, the Cardinals, the Patriots, the Jets, the Seahawks, and then the Cardinals again. Probably slightly tougher than the Saints. There's a bunch of big question marks there. Uh, The Cardinals, it seemed like, can 
beat anybody or lose to anybody, so you never know what's going to happen there. The Patriots are kind of the same way. The Jets are, well, we'll just pencil that in for a win right now, and the 49ers are kind of in the same boat as they continue to be super, super injured. The Seahawks have Russell Wilson, who's having a magnificent season, and a defense that has a lot of questions right now. They are currently the last defense in the league in terms of yards allowed, first downs allowed, uh, passing yards, uh, and they are 28th in net yards per attempt, 28th in passing touchdowns allowed. Who do they think they are, the 2011 Packers or what? The Seahawks are going to finish with the Eagles, Giants, and Jets. That's two probable wins. And then the Eagles, who knows again, they play the Washington football team, and then the Rams and 49ers. The Seahawks, it seems like, have a pretty straightforward path to a one or two seed. They're going to be tough to overtake. Finally, the Buccaneers are hanging around at seven and four. They've got the Chiefs, Vikings, Falcons, Lions, and Falcons again. So two wins against the Falcons, probably. Lions, probably a third. And then we'll see what happens with the Chiefs and Vikings. They're a tough one for the Packers because um, they have the head-to-head win, obviously. And seeding-wise, maybe the Packers want to avoid them anyway. So the Packers at least have a, a theoretically pretty good shot here at being in contention. But are they going to be hurt by the fact that they didn't do anything at the trade deadline? I think this is an instance where maybe they aren't really going to be hurt all that much seeding-wise. But as we kind of talked about post-game, I'm... I'm concerned about matchups now for the Packers. This is not the Packers, a Packers team that's going to line up against just anybody you throw out there and feel like you have a pretty good shot. They do need a specific matchup, it feels like, to have a really good shot at winning. But they can win. Acquiring somebody at the deadline or, you know, to expand it out a little bit further, drafting somebody that would have improved your offense from where it is, and admittedly really good at times this year, would have at least helped them be a better version of the team that they are right now. I'm not sure they would ever have been good enough on offense to really overcome the defensive shortcomings that they have, but you at least help them maximize the version of the team that they are right now. And that's where this gets a little bit frustrating. The Packers are not necessarily as good as they could be, but they are still pretty good. And to kind of put a bow on this, a thing that really helps the Packers to circle back to something that we touched on briefly is that there may not really be a juggernaut team in the NFC. The Packers have already beaten the Saints. And I think if they got them at Lambeau Field and it wasn't windy, they could do it again. I think they match up pretty well with the Saints. The Rams, I'm less sure about. The Seahawks, I'd feel pretty good about. I like them in a a track meet at Lambeau Field, if if it comes down to that. I I just think on the the right day, they could beat anybody there. There are some worse matchups. Tampa Bay is going to continue to be a problem. And who knows what you're getting with the Eagles or anybody that comes out of the quagmire that is the NFC East. But I think... In a normal year, it may have hurt the Packers to not try to improve at the trade deadline, but in a weird kind of way, maybe this year is the one where you don't really have to give up assets at the deadline to try to really, really maximize it. I would have liked to see them at least try to really jam that window open just for once, but if you're not going to do it, maybe this is the year. There is a problem at the end of the Packers game. They failed to convert a fourth down play 
that may have given them a win over the Colts. So what's the deal with that fourth down play calling? We got a question about that from Joano from Brazil. Also goes by John. So I'm sorry you gave me pronunciation lessons via email, but doing the best we can here. Um, So he asks, is it me or does Matt LaFleur not know how to convert a fourth down? He's been a great coach since he got here. But Sunday, we lost a chance to get a W at the end of the fourth quarter by giving the ball back to Indy with an, in my opinion, terrible call on an attempt to pass to Jamal Williams. And it's not the first or the second or third time we've had bad calls on fourth downs. So let's talk about fourth downs in general. We could also group third downs in here because there have been issues, notable issues in the LaFleur era with third and fourth downs and short. Let's kind of restrict it to and short. Um... Just for the purposes of our our discussion, we'll talk just about fourth downs. So let's talk about that in general. How have the Packers done under Matt LaFleur? Using the stat head tool at Pro Football Reference, I found 18 fourth down attempts on fourth and three or less in the LaFleur era. That is not necessarily comprehensive. That tool can be a little bit wonky, but I think they've had at least 18. And according to that search, they've converted 10 of 18. That's just over 55%. They've run nine running plays and nine passes, and they've both converted five of nine attempts. Runs are five of nine. Passes are five of nine. In that era, 55.6% on fourth and short is tied for 10th worst in the NFL. The league best is the Ravens, who have converted 73.9 of their fourth down chances in that span, 17 of 23. This call specifically... We said post-game was a weird call, and I still think of it that way. We've since learned a little bit more, and it hasn't really moved my opinion one way or another. First issue I have with this play is that it seems like a long-developing play. Running play action is slow by nature. There are very few quick play-action passes. Even a run-pass option is pretty slow-developing compared to just a quick slant or even just a straight handoff, or even worse, a quarterback sneak. You also give the defense more opportunities to disrupt your play, and that's exactly what happened on this play. Elton Jenkins said post-game or Monday, sometime between the end of the game and now, that he did not sell the run block hard enough. His guy ended up bursting right past him, pressuring Rodgers. Rodgers makes a bad throw. Second big issue I have on on this play is that of the three guys – in the route on the side where Rodgers is looking. It's Jamal Williams, Robert Tunyon, and Devontae Adams. One-third of the options on that play involve throwing to Jamal Williams and essentially counting on him to make a play in space. He's got to beat a linebacker one-on-one in the open field to get open. And the only reason that he looked a little bit open is because Aaron Rodgers made a throw that kind of threw him open, led him downfield, It was not really a a great throw. It really wasn't anything that had a serious chance at converting. But that's kind of beside the point because getting open in space, making plays in space, has really never been Jamal Williams' strong point. He is a one-cut-and-go zone back or, you know, duck-behind-your-shoulder pads and power forward kind of back, right? Speed is not really his deal. Plays in space are not really his deal. So why, on a fourth down in a key situation in the game, are you drawing up a play that has any sort of dependence on 
Jamal Williams making a play in space. That's this call specifically. More broadly, I think Joano's on to something here. I have issues with the way that Matt LaFleur approaches these plays. It seems like a lot of the time when there's a fourth and short or just a third and short, he reaches for these kind of special plays. And I think without doing exhaustive film study or drawing on any specific examples, like I can't tell you fourth and one, fourth and two, with three minutes to go in the third quarter of week six or seven or whatever, he ran this play and I didn't like it. Just anecdotally, it seems like he's reaching for plays that he only runs in those down and distances. One that we do seem to see a lot is a run out of shotgun that involves a pulling guard going one way or another. It seems like a lot of movement out of a non-ideal running formation to get two yards or one yard. Why not just run your normal offense? You've got Aaron Rodgers who's playing some of the best football he's played in half a decade. You've got Devontae Adams who could beat, it seems, quadruple coverage just about any time he chooses. You've got an athletic tight end. You've got Aaron Jones, who's pretty darn good at making plays in space, given the opportunity. Why not just run your normal offense? Why insist on doing things differently just because it's third or fourth down? We know that Matt LaFleur can design good plays. We've seen him do it. He does it a lot. But on fourth down or third down and short, he seems to forget about those good plays and tries to do something different. And I think this may just still be part of the growing pains with Matt LaFleur. He's still, he's learning on the job in a lot of ways. That was a knock on him when they announced the hire. I don't know if it necessarily has a ton of merit, but we are still seeing him learn And the learning is taking some time. And I think eventually he'll get there. I hope so. Otherwise, we might end up watching a lot of plays like we did on Sunday. Finally, I want to spend some time talking about Darius Shepard. Not so much Darius Shepard specifically, but kind of the idea of Darius Shepard. I don't know what the Packers are doing here. And I've written a piece to that effect at acmepackingcompany.com. As a side note, I apologize for how slow I've been updating the links on thepowersweep.com. Usually I try to throw links to everything I write up there so you can find it easier, but you know how the internet works. You can see it at acmepackingcompany.com. The title of the piece is What Are the Packers Doing with Darius Shepard? So the thesis here is Marquez Valdez-Scantling, rightly so, got a lot of heat for his overtime fumble that essentially cost the Packers the game. But another wide receiver made a bad play in that game, Darius Shepard. He fumbled on a punt return and set the Colts up with great field position. And I have to just ask, why? Why was Darius Shepard in position to make that play? Why is he on the roster at all? Darius Shepard is a nice story, fun story even. Small wide receiver from a small school, got a nice human interest story background, has some Some tough times in his past that he's overcome, and now he's in the NFL. That's great. Problem is, he's not very good. It's been a rough go since he made the roster out of training camp in 2019. He hasn't been very productive, and he keeps getting put in positions where he can't 
really succeed. He's not a good punt returner. Sean Menenga's scheme issues notwithstanding, he's not been productive. He's not good on kick returns. He makes bad decisions. He lets the ball bounce on kick returns and punt returns. And yet here the the Packers are continuing to give him a roster spot. Why? Why? To me, it reminds me a lot of Ladarius Gunter. Gunter was a nice story, too. Converted receiver. Made the Packers nice, big, physical cornerback. Long arms, six foot two. Lots of great things. And after Sam Shields gets hurt at the start of the 2019 season, 2016 season, excuse me, he ends up playing a pretty big role in the Packers' defense. A much bigger role than I think the Packers expected. And quite honestly, a much bigger role than he ever should have. How do we know that it's a much bigger role than he ever should have? Watch the stat lines for Des Bryant and Julio Jones in the 2016 playoffs. Woof. Des Bryant just about single-handedly cooked the Packers that day. Nine catches, 132 yards, two touchdowns. The very next week, Julio Jones actually does pretty much single-handedly cook the Packers. He has nine catches, 180 yards, and two touchdowns. A lot of them coming against Ladarius Gunter. But if Ladarius Gunter is in that situation, whose fault is it really? Is it his fault that he's giving up big play after big play after big play to two of the NFL's best wide receivers in the playoffs? In theory, yes. He is giving up those completions. But at, the, at a certain point, it's like that, I think it's from the office. Anecdote, and it doesn't really matter. It's like putting a toddler behind the wheel of a car. Is the toddler going to crash that car? Almost certainly. Is it really the toddler's fault that they were crashing the car? Not really. That's kind of what you've got in Darius Shepard. He's small. He's not a good athlete. And yet the Packers keep putting him out there to do things that require him to to use skills that he really doesn't have. And that just befuddles me. Because Brian Gutekunst has shown that he will churn his roster. He has this year. He's added receiver after receiver after receiver after receiver to the practice squad. And yet here you have Darius Shepard continuing to get opportunities on the active roster. And it just doesn't make sense to me. And I think it's a big shortcoming of the Packers' front office that they continue to try to make this work. And I don't understand why. He's, been a, he's an undrafted free agent. It's not like you have anything invested here. But here, here you have the Packers trying to make this thing work, and it just isn't. And it's costing them. This is a pretty small thing in the grand scheme of things. He's a five, number five, number six receiver, sure. But he still is getting shots in big positions, in games where they're trying to play for playoff seeding. And at a certain point, yes, he should be making those plays. He shouldn't be fumbling the ball. But you have to ask yourself, why is he in that position to begin with? So I've got for you in this episode. Do appreciate you tuning in. Check out the episode on Patreon of the Patreon podcast. 
Uh, there's a lot of fun stuff there. We're doing listener questions exclusively this week. In two weeks, we'll be back again with another topic, but I've got a lot of good questions there from our patrons. Would love it if you were a part of them. In the meantime, if you know somebody who you think would enjoy this podcast, do me a favor and share it with them. That's going to help us continue to grow this show. And it's been growing quite well this year. I've been I've been very pleased with the, with the downloads we're getting. And, and it seems like we're having a lot of great conversations around this team. And ultimately, hopefully, we are all becoming smarter Packers fans together. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans. And better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.